So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 15. We've been looking at the Christmas story really as told through the pages of the Old Testament. We're going to do that this Christmas. And I think there's much reason to do that, to see that there is a unified story in the Scriptures, that God has told us in the Old Testament what is coming in the New, and that He prepared the way. And we'll see that as we look at the text today. If you think about, for just a moment, uh, what we looked at last Sunday, we looked at the promise in uh, 1 Chronicles 17, the promise made to David that God would build him a house. David says, I want to build you a house, O Lord. And God says, no, David, I'm going to build you a house, a lineage, a royal lineage. And your house, uh, the house that I'll build for you, will never come to an end, but will reign forevermore. And we spoke about how that points to Christ and that that is, in fact, a Christmas promise. And so as we look at this today, we want to see how this will play into the song that's found that we read a moment ago in Exodus chapter 15. Now, as we start there, you know the story. The children of Israel have been in a foreign land for 400 years, as Abraham was foretold. It was promised to Abraham by God that he would have descendants, particularly a seed of promise and descendants and a land. And this promised land would be his, but first the children of Israel would go into a foreign land in captivity for a time and then return And of course, you know the story. As Joseph is sold into slavery and is sent into Egypt, and eventually the brothers come, and we know that wonderful story. But over time, that story sours a bit, doesn't it? As the children of Israel are put in chains and become slaves. But God had promised that one day they would return into the promised land. And so we're waiting for a a person to come who God is going to use to free the people, to lead them out back toward the promised land and that man is Moses and God uses him in a mighty way he comes back and stands on behalf of God and the people of Israel before Pharaoh the most powerful leader in the most powerful nation with the most powerful army anywhere in the world and it's just Moses and Aaron you can imagine that didn't inspire a lot of confidence except for those who believed that God was with them and knew what God could do. So plagues come, and slowly but surely, uh, you see that obstinance grow as Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And of course, that great sign, that great plague comes that strikes down the firstborn. But in that story, you see a Moses who believes the promises of God. A Moses who knows that if they obey God and do exactly what he says, that they will be saved from the death that is coming. They just take the blood of the Lamb and apply it to their homes. Standing under the blood of the Lamb, they will be freed from the grips of the death that is coming upon all the firstborn of Egypt. So my friends, God shows His power, shows His might, and Pharaoh relents and says, take your people and leave. Leave. But of course, they don't get very far before Pharaoh's heart hardens again, and he decides, this is the moment I'm going to go and either bring them back or wipe them out. Wipe them out. And so he gives chase. And at the Red Sea, uh, the Israelites look back and see the advancing army, the chariots and the horses, all the signs that the Bible gives us of strength in terms of military. They look back and see them coming. And of course, the people quake and are afraid. But Moses says, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. And the Lord does deliver in that moment, doesn't he? He does move as 
Moses will say, by the power of his outstretched arm. He moves in power and demonstrates in that moment of greatest danger that God is with them and will protect and deliver his people. So you know the story again there, don't you? As God moves in such a way as the sea parts and the Israelites are able to walk across on dry land. And of course, if there's ever a moment where Pharaoh feels he can stand in the very face of God and be blasphemous, he thinks, I'm going to go too. If this is parted for them, it must be parted for me. And he gives chase. And of course, God brings the mighty waters down, crushing the Egyptians, crushing them. And my friends, God is praised. And we see this. That's where we come to 15. Chapter 15 is the people standing in awe of what God has just done, bringing the people of God across dry land and then crushing the enemies of God. They sing a song. And I think it's important to recognize what the song is not. It's not a song praising the leadership of Moses. It's not a song praising the bravery of Moses or the strategy of Moses or the strategy of generals or mighty men. It's not even a song praising the courage of Israel. It's not even a song praising the faith of Israel. Because largely the faith of Israel shook that day, didn't it? Have you brought us out here, Moses, that we might die here instead of back in Egypt? So, my friends, what it is is a song of praise to God's faithfulness, to God's grace, to God's providence, to God's power. You see it over and over as you walk through it. Just very quickly again, you will see it. Look at these themes. I sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously as the mighty armies of Egypt have been washed asunder. The Lord is my strength, not Moses, not Numbers. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. If you continue to walk through, He praises the power of God. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. This is a song of power. It's a song of praise of God's victory, of God's might. That's what we see here. And it's made clear throughout it. God has done this. Not Moses, not the people. God has done this. Now, it would not be a mystery to them as to why God has done it. God is fulfilling His promise. He has made a promise to Abraham that his children will return one day into the land of promise. He's not going to let Pharaoh interrupt that. As mighty as Pharaoh is, Pharaoh has nothing to say at all about it. In fact, as Paul tells us in Romans, God raised Pharaoh up for the purpose of knocking him down, that he might be glorified. So Pharaoh is no obstacle to the will and plan of God. And we need to recognize that. So Moses is excited about what God has done. And he's telling the people through this song, remember what God has done, that God is mighty, that God is the one who has achieved this. But Moses is not the only one who wrote a song that day. If you continue forward to verse 20, Miriam also wrote a song. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, And all the women went out with her and after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing unto the Lord, 
For he has triumphed graciously and gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, there are some non-biblical, or we should say extra-biblical, things like the Dead Sea Scrolls that give longer versions of this song. But ultimately, it says something very similar to what Moses has recorded. That God has won a great victory, that he has triumphed gloriously over the forces of the world, over Egypt, the most powerful enemy in this world. Even Pharaoh and his mighty army stood no chance against God's power and glory. And so we see Miriam with this song of praise in recognition of what God has done. And yet what's interesting is uh, that isn't the last song of praise to God's glory and might recorded in Scripture. In fact, it's not even the last one written by a woman recorded in the Scriptures. If you would turn to 1 Samuel, you'll see another important one. This is a woman in despair seeking a remedy that only God can provide. So I want to say this as the Exodus song seems like a national song of deliverance. This is a much more personal song of deliverance, an individual song of deliverance. But we're going to look beyond that in just a moment because I think it is more than that. But again, I'd say you know the story here. Hannah seeks a child. She's unable to bear one. She knows the stories of her people before, how Sarah was unable uh, to bear a child, and yet God blessed her and opened her womb and gave her a child. And Hannah is crying out to God, can you do the same for me? Can you give me a child? If you give me a son, I will do this, God. I vow that I will give him back to you, that he might serve you all his days. He'll be yours, Lord, to use for your glory. But just do this for me. Grant me this one request, that you give me this son. You may remember that as she's praying this so passionately uh, at the tabernacle, the high priest comes in and thinks she's drunk and says to her, leave the wine alone, what are you doing? And she says, I'm not drunk, I'm heartbroken. I'm crying out to God, the only one that can fix this for me. I'm crying out to him, oh God, will you do this for me? And of course, Eli says, the Lord has heard you. Uh, go on. But she does have a child, doesn't she? She goes home and conceives a son, and that son is Samuel. And she also records a prayer or song. And it's interesting when you listen to it. I want to read it. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 2, because it doesn't sound like what you'd expect to be written in a case where a woman has received kind of a personal uh, gift from God. It says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn or strength is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Amen. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren has borne seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave, and he brings up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap. 
to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and He has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of His saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven He will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His king and exalt the horn of His anointed. So my friends, as we think about this text, it's interesting. This song is not what I would expect a woman who has just been given this gift of a child to be saying. It, it goes beyond just terms of personal thanksgiving and, and praise to God and goes to a, a dynamic of victory, of warfare almost, doesn't it? Of warfare and victory. You see the language very much like what we just saw, language of national and military intervention. You'll see it again in verse 4. Look at that for just a second. The bows of the mighty men are broken. That's a military uh, picture. And those who stumbled are girded with strength. Look again uh, as you turn back to verse 10. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against them. Again, that's kind of surprising in this, isn't it? A a personal plea for a child has become this uh, picture of victory and God dashing his enemies and this ultimate victory that is pictured and we wonder why that might be but we see a a common theme with exodus don't we very similar pictures and ideas being sung one in the case of a national deliverance and now a personal deliverance if you will it's interesting and yet there's another theme working out in this which is a theme of reversal god has upset the way the world works hasn't he in his might in his power in his wisdom things are upset You can see it again as you look at it. He takes those that are hungry and He makes them no longer hungry. He takes those who have plenty of bread and He makes them hungry. He takes those who are low and sets them with princes and those who are high and exalted He brings low. God is judging the world, she is saying, and overturning its verdict time and again. It's interesting to hear her say that. It's a song written to celebrate the grace of God in His intervention on a personal level, and yet she sees it as part of a larger picture of what God is doing in time as He upsets the ways of the world and brings His plan and purpose into being. If we come to this third point I want to look at, we're going to go to Luke in just a second. If you want to go on to Luke chapter 1, you can. But it's amazing how all of these people form a a line in the Scriptures. Abraham, who we're going to look at next week, uh, is given a promise. And that promise is that his people will uh, inherit a land, his descendants will inherit a land, but first will go into Egypt, this foreign land where they will be held for a while until God intervenes. And of course that promise points to what we're looking at today in Moses, the greatest leader and prophet, if you will, of the Old Testament, the one to whom it is prophesied, or who prophesies that one will come like him one day. To him you should listen. Moses is the one that God raises up and empowers to lead the people out of slavery. And he does that. In fact, you could say it's him and his protege, Joshua, who lead the people into the promised land. Moses not making it all the way, but being graced by God to go upon a mountain and look into the promised land and see the glories that God is giving to his people. But again, 
That brings us up to the uh, entering of the land. And yet there is a time there in the days of the judges where the people are without hope. The people are without hope. They see wickedness everywhere. Each does what is right according to his own sight. And you can read about those cycles in the judges of, of up and down, right? Uh, apostasy and then invasion and then a return to realizing the need for God and, and the people are blessed again. A, a champion is uh, risen up and, and led, leads the people to victory and then again in their comfort and ease they fall back into idolatry. And during all that time there's really no consistent person to look to until God answers this prayer of this woman we just read about and gives her this son Samuel who becomes for a long time in his life the one person Israel can look to consistently as a godly example and godly leader over the people. And that will take place, by the way, all the way until the coming of David, who we looked at last week. The one who, by the way, Samuel is instrumental in pointing to, isn't he? As he is the one who goes to Jesse's household in Bethlehem and says, uh, God has appointed one of your sons to be king. And Jesse brings all of them out except David. And Samuel says, uh, God has told me one of your sons, but it's not any of these. Are there more? He says, I've got one more, but he's small and ruddy-complected. It's certainly not impressive. He's not the one God would want. And you'll remember what Samuel tells him. Man looks on the outside. God looks at the heart. Amen. Go get your other boy. Let me see him. It's that king to whom God makes the promise that we looked at last Sunday. David, and I believe his heart's desire of wanting to do good, wanting to build God a temple. God says, David, you misunderstand the relationship here. You don't provide for me, I provide for you. There'll be a temple built one day, but it's more important that you realize I'm going to build you a house and a name and a lineage and a throne and a kingdom that will never end because one is coming who will sit on that throne who will reign forevermore. And no enemy can change that. No enemy can take him off that throne. So my friends, again, this promise given to David bridges all the way till the coming of Christ. Who is the fulfillment of that promise? And yet, when that promise comes, and uh, Christ is going to appear very shortly, as Mary has had this revelation given to her, and in fact goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth and learns that Elizabeth is with child and how God has uh, done glorious miracles there and in her own life. And even how this baby, John the Baptist, in Elizabeth's womb recognizes the glory of who he's in the presence of and leaps for joy. And she says, now I realize, Mary, who you have in your womb. And Mary sings a song, doesn't she? She sings a song. And I want you to listen to it just for a second. It's basically what the girls sang before I got up here. But listen to it again. And Mary said, this is in verse 46 of chapter 1 of Luke. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. 
He has scattered the proud and the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. Amen. As we think about that for a moment, there's so much that we need to think about that's revealed here. First of all, you'll notice common themes again. Again, this is a woman having a child. Now, it's an important child, the most important, but it's a woman who's become pregnant. And yet, it's clear from her words, she sees it in the context of a larger promise. A larger promise. If we look at this, we hear echoes of the songs that we just looked at before. Moses' song, Miriam's song, and Hannah's song. There are echoes here. God is the one doing great acts of victory and deliverance throughout time. He is the one who graciously remembers His people, delivers His people. And here this young girl stands amazed that God would choose her. That God would choose her to be a part of the story. And not just a part of the story, a very important part of the story. This lowly country girl, God allows to be the one to bring forth the Messiah. Now it's interesting to me that you have all the themes from before. Victory. Even the language from Exodus, God's mighty arm has moved, she says. His mighty arm. He who is mighty has done great things. He has shown the strength with His arm, scattered the proud and the imaginations of their hearts. And that also brings us to the other theme that Hannah spoke of. This reversal, right? Look at it again. He has scattered the proud. He has put down the mighty, exalted the lowly, filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away. He has helped His servant Israel. Again, she's pointing to the fact that God is moving in time and space. He is moving in His plan and promise. And so we see the mighty power of God. And you see all these things that we've been looking at this morning. But there's the recognition from Mary that it's God who's done it all. She didn't do it. Elizabeth didn't do it. Nobody else can be given credit for what has happened here but God alone. God is the only one who could have fulfilled His promise. And my friends, that is the theme of the entirety of the Scriptures. No one else could fulfill the promise of God. God alone could do it. It's important to recognize that's the very thing we're told when the covenant with Abraham is made. As God does what? They make the covenantal line that they walk between and God puts Abraham to sleep. And God walks through that covenantal line alone. What is He saying? None of this relies on you, Abraham. This is strictly by promise. By my grace, I am the one who will fulfill it. I am the one who will do it. If, by the way, Abraham had walked that line, it would have been on him. All the curses of a covenant would have been on him that if he failed to keep any part of it, he would be liable even unto death. But God said, no, Abraham, you can't do it. And we see that over and over again as the promise is through a promised seed and yet his very wife is barren. Past age of bringing forth child as is he. Paul says something like, though her womb yet already dead. My friends, and Abraham, though as if nearly dead himself. And yet God kept his promise. That pattern continues with Rebekah. Rebekah. 
the generations here show us at the very beginning of the story the miraculous intervention of God. Without it, there is no promise to be kept. Only by God's strength, only by His power. In fact, man can't do it. You'll remember in that story, Abraham tries to do it. Sarah comes up with a plan. Take my servant Hagar. Have a child with her. We'll adopt that child. It will be the child of promise. And yet the thing that God is saying over and over is it's not by works. It's not by anything you can do, Abram. But it's by my promise. That's why when Abram pleads, Oh God, might Ishmael stand before you? God says, No. Ishmael is not the child of promise. But he's coming. Because I'm the one who's made the promise. And it will be fulfilled. Isaac will come. A laughable thing. You know, we give Sarah a hard time because she laughs, but Abraham laughed too when he was told it. My friends, the truth is, it seemed an impossible thing to happen, and yet God reminds us nothing is too hard for the Lord, as He says that even to Sarah. So we see this again. This pattern continues time and again in the history of Israel. Israel would have been wiped out, would have been destroyed, the promise unkept if it weren't for God intervening time and again. And here it is again, as He miraculously brings forth His Son into the world. My friends, God keeps His promises. Mary here declares that His mercy is upon those who fear Him, fear and revere Him, who recognize His glory, His greatness, His power. And it's those who revere Him throughout the generations on whom God places His mercy. And she says all this in the context of these great military pictures of God wiping out enemies, moving in power and might. My friends, we often think about Christmas. I try to point this out as often as I can. We often think about Christmas as this kind of quiet, beautiful scene of a little baby. But Mary didn't see it that way. Mary saw it as the very power of God entering the world to conquer the foes of God. When we look at that manger, there is a little baby there. But my friends, He is the very power of God. His gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And for those who are not in that gospel, for those who are not saved in Christ, it is also the message of judgment. Let's not forget that as Paul, we looked at this just a few weeks ago, but as Paul speaks of the gospel being the power of God unto salvation, for he says that, God's grace is being shown to us. He then goes on to say the wrath of God has already appeared against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. My friends, Christmas is a major part of that story. God has brought low the proud, has exalted the humble. He scattered the mighty, taking down thrones and kingdoms. Christ is overturning the wickedness of the world. And that's demonstrated in the Christmas story. Jesus is born in a lowly manger in an unimportant town at that time other than the fact that David came from it. Not a significant town otherwise. And in the shadow of that town, or I should say that shadow, that town sits in the shadow of the Herodian. And if you know that, that's Herod's palace, one of the greatest palaces in the world. In the shadow of such an impressive palace, the true king is born in a manger and no one takes note except those that God calls the shepherds in the field lowly 
unimportant. God calls them, lets them know what's happening. Magi, he calls from thousands of miles away to come by the presence of a star. And I always think it's shocking that they end up in Jerusalem and everybody asks, why are you here? Why are you here? And they say, we've seen the star and we know what it means. The great king has been born. And Bethlehem's just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And yet no one accompanies them that short distance to see the, born, the newborn king. These foreigners alone go to visit the king. My friends, we need to recognize all of this is talking about what God is doing and how nobody noticed it. Nobody recognized the amazing things that were going on right before them. The king of kings is born. All a part of God's long-standing plan to fill the promise he made to Abraham and even before that in the garden. Genesis chapter 3, when he makes the promise of redemption, that first promise of the gospel, that uh, there will be a, a son, a seed of woman who will come and crush the serpent's head. My friends, God is intervening mightily and graciously on a mission of deliverance. And Mary recognizes that that is at the heart of the Christmas story. God's deliverance. Yes, a baby in a manger, and it is a, a precious scene, but the very power of God demonstrated in our midst. Amen.